So I have this crazy, stubborn belief that like you're here for a reason. Uh, and I don't mean like, cause somebody bribed you to come or your wife was gonna be really mad at you. So you finally, just to get her to shut up came uh, or whatever else. I really believe that everybody sitting here is here because somehow, some way God orchestrated this. Uh, and because I believe that, I also believe that he wants to, I don't know, he wants to meet you here. He wants to speak to you. Uh, and I don't take that lightly, um, especially today. So if you would, I, I just want to pray one more time before we jump in. Uh, God, I pray uh, for every single person sitting here, Lord, they would open their, their heart to you, uh, that they would open their ears to hear from you, uh, that this would not just be another Sunday, another, I went to church, nothing happened, it's the same, Lord, I pray that you would move in this. We want to have <laughs> an encounter with you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, hey, real quick before I jump in, I uh, wanted to keep reminding you, uh, we're starting a new thing. If you haven't heard, we're starting uh, this fall church on Thursdays. We're going to have another service on Thursday, and we're still going to have the two on Sunday. We're really excited about it. I realized I had not actually told you when that was happening. I just keep very vaguely saying fall, so I'm going to make it specific now. It's September 21st is when we're starting, so it's like 40 days from today. Uh, I wanted to let you know, if you have questions about that, we have a, a Zoom call if you want to have like a nice nostalgic 2020 thing. We've got a Zoom call on Wednesday. If you want to jump onto that on our social media, we'll be posting everywhere you can get on. If you have any questions or you're curious about anything, you can jump on there. Uh, I'll be there and I'll kind of share some more of the vision behind that. Uh, I would also say just right now, uh, I want to challenge you. If you call Mosaic home, if, you, uh, if this is like your church, you come here regularly, you kind of decide it. If you're newer, you're cool. But if, if this is like your church and you don't volunteer anywhere, I'd really, I just want to challenge you to pray about uh, this being the time when you jump in. Because uh, as we head towards launching this Thursday thing, our volunteer need is going to go up. And it's just a really cool time uh, for you to jump in and be a part uh, of what God is doing here. So, so just... Just pray about that. Think about that. Uh, it's really cool. All right. Uh, I want to start today with a quick survey. We're going to get to know each other a little bit. So I'm going to have you raise your hand. You don't have to raise your hand if you want to be one of those people, those introverts who, you know, you rebel and you don't raise your hand for anything. You don't have to. It's fine. It's cool. Be cooler than everybody else. Um, but I, and it's, they're easy questions. So we'll start, we'll start with this one. Uh, dog or cat? Dog or cat? Dog people. Raise your hand. Dog people. Oh, yeah. Okay, good. All right. Cat people, let's see it. All right. Ushers, if you'd come. I'm just kidding. I, you know, it's good. The, the percentage was right and true, and that's what it was supposed to be. There's way more dog people than cat people. So God is doing work here. So, I'm kidding. You love your cat. They don't love you, but you love your cat. Uh, all right, all right. Uh, another easy one. Coke or Pepsi? Coke people. Coke people. Pe Pepsi? Mm -hmm. Put them down. Coke people again. Huh. Pepsi? 
Interesting. It was like half. Okay. Water. Just so we know who's judging us. Okay. Cool. That's weird. First, just so you know, our nine o'clock service was heavily weighted towards Coke, uh, which was good. I was like, all right, we got dog, we got Coke, we're hitting all the right things. All right. Uh, Democrat or Republican? Just kidding. <laughs> Can you imagine? Well, that was the end of Mosaic. What a weird thing. Just one little question. Just ended it. <laughs> I would never do that. Uh, I like my job too much. <laughs> All right, one more. Big picture or detail-oriented? Big picture, people. Raise your hand if you're more big picture. Oh, boy. Uh, details. Wow. Okay, 11 o'clock. This is interesting. So we got some Pepsi drinkers and detail-oriented people in this. This is, this is interesting, All right. Uh, now, all those are generally preference, right? The fun part is you, you think you're right, right? You know, if you like dogs, you like Coke, whatever, like you, you think your opinion is the right one. But we know that that's a matter of preference. Now, the big picture detail-oriented one is an interesting one because you could have a legitimate discussion and say, all right, um, you know, I think it's better to be big picture. And you could make some arguments there because if you miss the forest for the tree, you're doing something wrong. Uh, but you could also make the argument that the details make up the big picture and you start missing on too many details, the big picture is going to spoil. Uh, me and my wife are a per perfect example of this. Yet It was crazy yesterday. I was like, the Lord is showing me something right now. And I, it was good that God was like there and the Holy Spirit was checking my soul because we, we were going to um, clean out and like organize our office in, 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 at our house. I'm big picture, she's detail-oriented. So I walk in and I'm like, all right, here we go. You know, we're gonna move some stuff, big stuff. She sits down with a single pile of papers and starts going through them. And I'm like, and I did, it was like, it, Holy Spirit caught me like five seconds late. I was like, what are you doing? And have you, are you, have you been married enough to know that a sentence like that, I might as well have said, I hate you. She didn't even answer. She just kept going. I'm like, oh, oh, oh. And then it was like, then God's like, Adam. I'm like, oh, sorry. Yeah. So I, I just sat down for a minute and re reorganized my thoughts. But um, truth is, one's not necessarily better than the other. Actually, there's kind of a third type of person. And you can, you can be this, uh, hopefully, no matter what your bent is. The most powerful, and I believe the people who like, make the greatest impact on the planet, are not necessarily just big picture or detail-oriented. It's the people who can make the connection between the two. If you can actually make the connection between the details and the big picture, that's when you can really start to make an impact in your life because you know how the little things add up to the big thing. And that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about making a connection. And I want to be honest, this is one that sometimes we have a hard time with. Uh, so we're in this story uh, about this girl named Esther. Uh, we started last week. Uh, name of the series God in the Shadows because there's a lot of darkness in this story, but uh, God's moving in spite of that. Not in overt ways, not in flashy ways, but he is moving nonetheless. So to catch you up, if you're not familiar with the story, uh, the people of Israel in captivity in the empire of Persia, uh, King Xerxes is the king of Persia. He's a scumbag. Uh, he deposed his queen last week. She didn't listen to him. So he said, fine, you're not queen anymore. And he chose a new queen who happens to be Esther. Esther is a young Jewish girl, 
But at this point in the story, nobody knows she's Jewish. She's keeping that close to the vest. Uh, she is not advertising her ethnicity. So this week, we're going to learn about two new characters. Uh, one's name is Mordecai. Mordecai is Esther's cousin, uh, but he's also been her caretaker. If you remember last week, she lost both of her parents, so Mordecai's been taking care of her. Uh, and we're also going to be introduced to a guy named Haman. Haman is the second most powerful man in the kingdom behind King Xerxes. Uh, so here's what goes down. This, like, so if you ever like, watch a movie or, or, or it's a good story, there's always a crisis, right? There's always a thing that happens that has to be overcome. This is the part in the story where the crisis begins to happen, okay? It's a weird spark that lights this fire, as you'll see, uh, but this is kind of where the tension is created. Verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 2. All the king's officials would bow down before Haman to show him respect whenever he passed by, for so the king had commanded. But Mordecai refused to bow down or show him respect. Then the palace officials in the king gate asked Mordecai, why are you disobeying the king's command? They spoke to him day after day, day after day, but still he refused to comply with the order. So they spoke to Haman about this to see if he would tolerate Mordecai's conduct since Mordecai had told them he was a Jew. All right, so if this is your first time with this story, it's kind of interesting because you get dropped into this thing. We're not given detailed like why behind things, but so you got this guy named Mordecai who's a little bit full of himself, maybe a lot full of himself. Every time he walks by, people are supposed to bow down. But for some reason, and we're not told why, this Mordecai dude just stands there, a little bit defiant, doesn't want to bow down to this guy, doesn't tell us why, but he does it. And it's not like an accident. It's not like he was having a conversation and missed it day after day. And then people even come and say, hey man, you know, you're supposed to bow down. And he's like, yeah, I don't care. And he just kept doing it day after day. And then they're like, well, if we're going to keep talking to you about this, then we're just going to have to go tell Haman, you know, what's happening. So here's, here's what happens. Verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not bow down or show him respect, he was filled with rage. He had learned Mordecai's nationality, so he decided it was not enough to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Instead, he looked for a way to destroy all the Jews throughout the entire empire of Xerxes. Wow. So they got a beef, right? For some reason, Mordecai's not bound down, and Haman's like, would that dude? Always a Jew. <laughs> and, and he thinks, now listen to this, he thinks that the proper response to this disrespect is genocide. <laughs> Now, guys, I know that, can we just be real men for a minute, that sometimes we overreact to disrespect sometimes, a little bit maybe. This is like the, the biggest overreaction in the history of overreactions for disrespect. You disrespect me, I'm going to kill everybody, and anybody who's like even mildly related to you, I'm going to kill all of them. That's how Haman felt here. Massive overreaction. So, this is the story. Esther is queen, she's Jewish, nobody knows it yet. Uh, Haman, second in command, wants to kill all the Jews. And this is the thing that you need to keep in mind. This is not an idle threat. This dude's got money. This dude's got power. He's got pull. He can do it. He can do it. So when he decides that he just wants to kill all the Jewish people, this is a legitimate, real threat. This could happen. So here's what I'm going to do. You ever watch a show 
where the show's plucking along and all of a sudden they do like a flashback that helps kind of explain some things that are happening. I want to do that right now. We're going to do a flashback. Uh, we're going to flash way back though. We're going to flash, flash back 500 years previous. Okay, so you follow. We're in the story of Esther, people of Israel in captivity, uh, Haman, Mordecai, all that. We're going to flash 500 years previous. So, pff, screen just changed. It's black and white. You follow? Okay, good. Uh, king Saul, first king of Israel, okay? First king of Israel, uh, wasn't a great king. He gets commanded by God to do something. He's commanded by God to destroy uh, this nation of people called the Amalekites. And God tells him to wipe them off the planet. He says, just annihilate them. God wants him to destroy this army. Um, here's the crazy thing. Well, it's not. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's just normal. Saul obeys. Mostly. Mostly. He, he wins. He wins. He beats them. Uh, but he, he spares some people. He, he doesn't kill all the livestock and all the stuff. He's supposed to, but he didn't. And he, and, he, and he didn't kill the king. King's name is Agag. A-G-A-G. King Agag. Remember that. King Agag, King Agag, important detail. Doesn't kill him. And then we learn later, this isn't directly in the story, we learn later uh, that like 15 chapters later, David is fighting some Amalekites after years have passed. So what that shows you is that not only did he spare King Agag, he spared some other ones as well. So he mostly listened, right? God told him to do something and he kind of did it, he sort of did it, he almost did it, he did some of it, right? That's where he's at. Now, uh, God watches this whole thing go down and God sends a prophet named Samuel to go talk to Saul about this thing. And I want to show you the interaction because it's, it's super intriguing and I think it shows us a lot. Uh, so Samuel's coming to talk to Saul after Saul partially obeyed God. Uh, verse, uh, 1 Samuel 15 verse 17. And Samuel told him, Although you may think little of yourself, are you not the leader of the tribes of Israel? The Lord has anointed you king of Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and told you, go and completely destroy the sinners of the Amalekites until they are all dead. Verse 19, why haven't you obeyed the Lord? Why did you rush for the plunder and do what was evil in the Lord's sight? Verse 20 is Saul's response. But I did obey the Lord. I carried out the mission he gave me. I brought back King Agag, but I, I destroyed everyone else. So there's a couple, couple, I just want to make a couple quick observations here. When Samuel goes at him in the beginning, he says, you think little of yourself. So it's interesting that Samuel's pointing out the reason he thinks Saul didn't do what God told him to do. He said it's because Saul's insecure. It's because Saul thinks little of himself. That's the reason he didn't do what God called him to do. The, the reason Saul lived beneath his calling is because he thought little of himself. God had given him a high calling. He thought little of himself and he lived beneath it. There's a lesson in that by itself. Some of you in this room, that's what you're doing. You're, you're allowing yourself to live below God's calling because you think little of yourself. I would challenge you to let God speak truth to you about your identity. Not live beneath what he's calling you to. Because it can really, really spoil everything. <laughs> but then I really, what I really want to zoom in on is Saul's response. 
But I did obey. But I did. I did it. Most of it. You know, I, I did some of what, what God told me to do, right? And I even want to point out, he's a little bit misrepresenting. He's like, well, I spared the king, King Agag, and I spared some of the sheep, but he, he's not mentioning that, you know, there was probably a band of warriors that ran off over a hill, and one of his commanders was like, so, 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 look, they didn't get in the way. And he's like, whatever. We got, we got them. You know, we won. We, we, we killed most of them. But he doesn't even mention that. So not only did he partially obey, he's misrepresenting how much he obeyed. But if I could sum up his attitude, his attitude about the whole thing is kind of, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? I, I, it's not like I refused to go. I did go fight these people that God told me to go fight. Like I did most of it. I did some of it. Like he has this attitude. Hey, I, don't, I just don't understand what the big deal is, Samuel. I did most of what God told me to do. God, listen to this, God commanded Saul to do something. Saul didn't see the reasons behind the command, so he didn't take the command very seriously. Let me say that again. Saul didn't see the reasons behind the command, and since he couldn't see the reasons, he didn't take the command very seriously. Can we be real? I know this is church. And you're going to pretend to be a better person than you really are. But if we could be real for just a minute. We do this, don't we? I do this. I want to, I'll go first if you want to lie. I'll, go for, I'll, be, I'll be honest first and say that I do this. That sometimes I see some of the commands that God has given. And I look at them and I go, I don't get it. I don't understand the reasons behind it. And I'm really tempted to slip into a, I don't know, who cares? Like, what's the big deal, God? I can do that. And I bet there's, there's commands when you read them in the Bible. I bet every once in a while when you're reading that and you see some of the stuff that God tells us to do, I bet you do the same thing. Maybe not consciously. If you've been a church person for a while, you definitely whisper that stuff even inside your own head, right? You know what I mean when I say whispering inside your own head, right? You, you're quiet about it. But you're like, I don't know, God. I don't get it. And it's hard sometimes. It's hard. It's easy to slip into... What's the big deal? And I want to say there's two ways you can do this, two places in your life that this happens. I call it commands and nudges. There are things that God commands us, and then there's times that God nudges us in certain directions. So first, God commands us, and this is the stuff in the Bible, right? The God, God, these 66 books of the Bible where God tells us all these things about the way he wants us to live. And we read some of it and we're like, that's awesome, absolutely, yes and amen, don't judge, you know, love your neighbor, all that stuff, God, that's awesome, Jesus, you're, you're so insightful and good, you know, don't murder, that one sounds good, well, in most days I'm good with that one, you know, like, you, you go down the line and you like a lot of it, but then you hit some of what it says and you're like, I don't, I don't get it. Like, what's the big deal? You know, when God says to love your enemies, Sometimes then, you know, that, that could be hard, right? You, you look around and, and, and you kind of want to be like, Saul, I don't get it. It would be easier for me not to do that. Matter of fact, it almost seems right for me not to do that. I have a high sense of justice. I don't want to love my, my enemies. Um, maybe I can love some of them, but I can't love all of them. And you do that. It, by the way, that's the same thing Saul did, right? I did most of it, God. I did some of it, God, but I'm not doing all of it because I don't get it. 
Or, or God puts parameters uh, around our sex lives. And, and we think, okay, uh, what's the big deal? What's the big, I can look at that. I can do that. I can jump into bed with this person. I, I mean, God, I just don't, I don't get it. I don't get the reasons behind this stuff. So we slip into the same attitude. God gives commands around our finances. Be generous. Give a portion of what you make back to him. Help people in need. Don't be greedy. He puts those parameters around that, and it's really easy to look and they go, I don't get it. I don't get it. It'd be easier for me not to. Matter of fact, for the number on my bank statement, it would be way easier for me not to do that. I don't get it, God. I'll kind of listen, but I, I don't know if I can buy all the way in. Have I hit everybody yet? Let me keep going. The list of uncomfortable things to talk about in church. Money and sex, that's good. We covered everybody probably. God tells us to do certain things and not do certain things. And like Saul, we want to shrug our shoulders at some of it and be like, I don't get it. I don't understand the big deal, God. So that happens with the commands. I know that happens with the commands. Now, I, I want to bring a separate category in and say that there's also times uh, where God nudges us to do things. And this isn't necessarily stuff you'll read in the Bible, but there's going to be a time where God will nudge you, hey, you know, text that person right now. Just text them. And you're going to go, I don't want to. There's going to be a time when God says, hey, encourage that person. Hey, you know what? You need to invite that person to church. Hey, you know what? Roll your window down and actually hand that homeless person some money. God's going to nudge you sometimes. And they're not like specific like Bible stuff, but every once in a while, he's going to nudge you. And it's going to kind of be the same thing. This one's even harder though, because this one you can really easily talk yourself out of when God nudges you or, or maybe, maybe the, uh, this is a little self-serving, uh, but like maybe while I was saying, hey, you, if you haven't volunteered at Mosaic, you need to volunteer, you probably heard of God go, yep, you should do that. That happens, right? The Holy Spirit kind of does that stuff sometimes. But it's really easy to talk ourselves out of this. It's really easy to, like Saul, kind of have a, I don't, God, God, I don't know. Like, is it really going to make a difference? If I, if I text that person a little encouragement, is it really going to make a difference at all? If I, if I invite that person, they're just going to say no anyways. Like, you talk yourself out of all that. I can't volunteer. I don't, like, you can talk yourself out of these nudges, just like Saul talked himself out of doing what God told him to do. Now, they're different. I do want to, just as a little side note, disclaimer, just so you know. Nudges are harder because unless you're super Pentecostal, uh, you're not going to be 100% certain that it's God that's nudging you to do the thing. Some people are like, God told me. That's cool. I don't know how you knew that because um, I've never heard that audible voice before. And maybe they did. I'm not gonna, mm. But most of the time when people say that, I'm like, mm, okay. But I hear what I do know. If you think God's nudging you to do something and it contradicts the commands that are clearly written down, you're, you're hearing wrong. Can I say that? <laughs> like, I, it, it, it's not God. It's not the Holy Spirit. It's the pizza you ate last night. Take a Tums and chill, okay? It's not. Because uh, I get that all the time. It's like, oh, I feel like God's not me to do this thing. I'm like, well, God says not to do that thing. So it's not God. It's you. That's my disclaimer. Because sometimes I think people like, get a little confused on that. He's clear in his, in his commands. So let's, let's make sure we follow them. But both of these can be difficult sometimes. Both of these. When you read something in the Bible and it says, live this way, we can have a what's the big deal attitude. When God nudges you to do something, you can have a what's the big deal attitude about it. It's really easy to slip into it. And I get it. I get it. But I want you, I, I, we need to look at Saul. 
when you look at Saul here, because I want to make a connection. I want to make a connection. So, recap of the flashback. God told Saul to wipe out the Amalekites. He didn't. He spared King Agag, and, and evidently he missed some people because David's dealing with him just a couple of chapters later. So Saul partially obeys. Saul kind of obeys. Saul maybe would argue he mostly obeyed. Okay. Flashback over. Flash forward. I want to show you a couple of verses that we have skipped over because of time. I want to jump back to Esther chapter 2 verse 5. This is where Mordecai is introduced. At that time, there was a Jewish man in the fortress of Susa named Mordecai, son of Jair. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. He was a descendant of Kish and uh, Shimei. Shimei, maybe. Now, quiz uh, Sunday school scholars. You know who Kish is? Kish. It's kind of an obscure one. Kish is Saul's dad. So... What this tells us is that Mordecai and Esther are related in some way to Saul. Now, it doesn't say they're descendants of Saul. That could be because it's maybe one of Kish's other sons. It would also be because Saul's kind of an embarrassing person to be related to because he was really actually not a very good king. But in some way, 500 years down the line, Mordecai and Esther are related to Saul. Tribe of Benjamin from the line of Kish. Now, Interesting fact. Let me show you a more important one. Esther chapter 3, verse 1. I skipped this one on purpose. This is the introduction of Haman in the story. Sometime later, King Xerxes promoted Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, over all the other nobles, making him the most powerful official in the empire. The Agagite. 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 Agag. In case, you know, I, sometimes when you're watching shows and you like miss the flashbacks and you maybe miss the detail, maybe you weren't paying attention, but I don't know if you remember the name of the king that Saul spared when he was supposed to kill him. It was King Agag. Now, if you're the Sunday school scholar, you're going to be like, yeah, but didn't Samuel kill him? He did. But again, we know Saul missed some people because just a couple of chapters later, David's still dealing with this group of people. So there's a, it, what it appears here, since he's being called an Agagite, uh, the scholars I was reading were saying that Haman is a descendant of King Hakak. He's a descendant of a group of people that were supposed to not exist anymore. Haman, listen to me, if you read the entire Old Testament, Haman is the greatest threat to the people of God in the whole Old Testament. He comes this close to wiping them out in this story. Haman only exists as a villain in this story because 500 years previous, Saul heard a command from God and said, I don't get it. I don't get it. I just don't see, I don't see why this is important. What a crazy thing. What a crazy consequence to partial, kind of, sort of, obedience. So I want to make that connection. I want to make that connection between Saul's choice and the consequence of his choices, between Saul's choice and the 500-year gap between serious, mortal 
consequences. Now, here's the thing. You read that, you're like, okay, but like, couldn't God have just like said something to Saul? Like, hey, Saul, here's the deal. Like, I want you to do this and maybe you don't understand. So let me explain it to you. 500 years from now, you're going to have some descendants. People who literally are related to you 500 years from now. And they are going to be under a mortal threat from this people group. One of their descendants is going to try and wipe your family out. Matter of fact, the whole nation of Israel is going to be under a threat for their life. The genocide could happen. Kill them all, Saul. And he would have been like, yes, all right, yes, Lord, I'm going to go do that. But he didn't. And he could do that for us too, right? Because let's be honest, we, we see our, the, the physical stuff that we do, but we can't see the behind the scenes, right? We don't see uh, the... The, the spiritual implications of the things that we do. We don't always know, I do this in the physical, this is what happens in the spiritual. And God doesn't tell us. Just like Saul. This is some of the stuff that we read in the Bible and we go, I don't get it. Well, God's like, okay. But I'm not telling you for no reason. We're called to Faith. Word gets thrown around a lot, doesn't it? For some of you, when I say faith, you think believing like in God, right? Like that he exists. For some of you, when I say faith, it's more about believing that God, like that God will do this or that or whatever. But what if, what if I think a, an overlooked aspect of faith is just believing God, believing him. When he says, do this, don't do this. Because you know what I think the Bible is? And I'm going to keep telling you this. You've heard, hopefully you've heard me say this before because I just want to keep saying it over and over again. I believe that the way God tells us to live in the Bible is an invitation from him to us for us to live in harmony with the way he created the universe to work. Because God is in heaven and he can see the physical and he can see the spiritual. And when he says, live like this, do this, don't do this, he's telling us, you live like this. This is where harmony with the way I created the universe exists. Live like he says to live and you're in harmony. Don't live like he says to live, then you're, you're out of sync with the way he created the world to work. He's not gonna explain himself all the time. He's just going to say, don't do that, do this. And we're supposed to just believe him. And I know that's hard, especially for some of us. But man, I want to make, I want to make just a couple observations about Saul's partial obedience to help us see this, how, how important this is. The consequences of Saul's partial obedience, think about this. One, the consequences were delayed, right? They were delayed. Way delayed, 500 years delayed. And I think one of the biggest reasons we fail to obey God sometimes in our life is because the consequences don't hit us right away. You know, we kind of almost feel like we got away with something because you did it and you didn't immediately have something happen, right? You expect it almost to be like touch a hot stove. What, it takes a second for the pain to reach your brain and you're like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. You kind of think that if I do something God doesn't want me to do, it should be like that. I should hit me really fast, really hard. But it doesn't. Sometimes the consequences are delayed. Sometimes you can't even make the connection. And I tell you that, man, when I meet with people, I feel so bad sometimes because I'm sitting there going, I bet there's a connection here between some of the choices that have been made and the crisis we're experiencing now. I bet. But it's hard to see. 
And we can talk ourselves out of it sometimes too. So the consequences are less like touching a hot stove and more like radiation poisoning. You could be around radiation for a while, not feel any different at first, but slowly and imperceptively, your DNA starts to disintegrate and unzip and you start to rot from the inside out. That's more like what sin is like. Don't let the delay trick you into thinking that, oh, this isn't actually bad. Because that's what Saul thought. Second thing I want to observe about the consequences of Saul's partial obedience is they were bigger than Saul would have ever thought. What's the big deal was his attitude, wasn't it? What's the, ah, that roving band, they're getting away, whatever. I'm not going to waste resources to go chase them down. What's the big deal? We did most of it. We, we, we mostly obeyed. I give myself a C plus in obedience in this area. We, we did, pre, we passed, right? What's the worst that could happen? He never would have imagined that his relatives would be at risk of extinction because of this choice. But that's the way sin works. I want you to know that. And that this is why I think this is really some of the most loving stuff God can do is he's trying to get us to avoid these things that we can't even see the size of the consequences of them. And that's the way the enemy works too. He wants to hide that from you. He wants, you, he wants to downplay how big of a deal it is and, how, and the, the damage it's going to do in your life. And again, it's really easy to just kind of talk ourselves out of things being a big deal. Satan doesn't want you to see the implications of the choices you make. And then third, related to that, is part, Saul's partial obedience uh, had the consequence that affected others. It affected others. It wasn't just him, you know? Now, I did, I don't know if you know the story, this, this, that story about Saul is actually the story where God decides that he doesn't want Saul to be king anymore. So he does have consequences for his actions there. But maybe he, part of what he thought was, this will only hit me. This will only affect me. It's not that big of a deal. I'll pay for this. No, no big deal. And again, he could have never imagined that an entire, his entire race was at risk from this decision. And I think we have this, if we can be, again, if you can be real, sometimes when we're doing the things that we know God doesn't want us to do, we kind of have a, uh, you know, who's a hurting attitude? If it's hurting anybody, it's just me. And maybe it's because you can't see it. Again, you can't maybe make the connection sometimes. But again, Saul would have never been able to predict the far-reaching consequences of the people that, that his decisions hurt. I think so often sin doesn't get contained. It is like a dirty bomb that goes off and it affects the people around you. It's going to hurt more than just you. Let me read a couple of verses that kind of sum up this idea perfectly. It's Galatians 6, 7 and 8 says this. Don't be misled. It's easy to be misled. Don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from a sinful nature. But those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. You got to make the connection between the things you're choosing to do and the life that those things are creating. The seeds of your choices and the harvest of the consequences. You got to make the connection. And some of those connections, you just have to trust God. You just have to trust him because he's not going to explain the whole thing to you. Now, here's my problem. I, 
No, I'll just say it, whatever. This is on the internet. I was just going to say this is a really good sermon, but that sounds cocky. Maybe I shouldn't say that. Um, it is. No, it is. And here's, here's the problem, though. Here's the problem. I preach to this diverse group of people and I'm trying to get us all to this, to this same place, but we're all coming at it from a different angle. So if, if you're a Christian or me, even if you're not a Christian, your perception of God, we tend to fall off in one of two extremes when we, when we perceive God, okay? Um, if you grew up in kind of a, you know, a fire and brimstone church, this gave you some bad PSD today and you're like, I don't like this, it hurts. Um, but the, what, what your perception of God could be uh, is you kind of emphasize the truth part, right? You see God as a God of rules and regulations. He's holy and high and lifted up. Um, in the extreme, though, if you fall off the cliff over here, you can view God as a little bit of a tyrant. And, and you're, you're over... Uh, your overarching reaction or um, your overarching feel about God is that he's always a little bit angry with you. That he's always a little bit irritated. That God just kind of puts up with you. You know, like, like a parent of an annoying child. Just, just, okay, you know, if you just stop for a minute. We'd be, like that's, that's how God views you. In its extreme, that's where that one goes. Now some of you are kind of on the opposite. You emphasize more of God's love. You view God as a friend. You see God's forgiveness and grace and mercy and you emphasize that. Now, great, true, yes, but in its extreme, this version can fall off the cliff and say, God doesn't really care how I live. God's totally cool, it's awesome, he loves you. Just forget about it, it's cool. And, and, and you can kind of have a flippant attitude towards God if you fall off the cliff on this side. The truth is, what you need to fight for is that there's a, there, there, maybe there's a tension here, but you have to hold that God is a God of truth and love, that he cares very much about how you live, and he forgives you when you screw it up. The way I say it is he loves you right where you are, but he loves you way too much to leave you there. Way too much to leave you there. They're both true. They're both true. His, his commands are a function of his love and his love flows through those things. They're related. Don't emphasize or don't fall off on a cliff on either side. They're both true. And the best place we see this when it all comes together is the cross. When Jesus dies on the cross for our sins. It shows the, this is the perfect intersection of God. It clearly cares about his commands because the cross is a serious thing. And he clearly cares about you because he sent Jesus to die for you. It's both. It's both. Can you hold the tension? Can we be a church that holds the tension? So here's what we're going to do. Uh, I ho hopefully you got communion when you came in today. We're going to take communion together. Um, Here's, how I, 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 here's what I want you to think. Communion is a really cool opportunity. Uh, an opportunity to have an encounter with Jesus. Uh, the real and living Jesus. But I want to coach you through it a little bit. You know, the, the little cracker, the bread, is supposed to represent Jesus' body, which was broken for you. The, the juice is supposed to represent his blood, which was spilled for you. I think communion is a great time to take a minute and do some reflecting. Uh, I've been praying all week that, 
God would do the work that I can't, that while I'm preaching, that he would be working in your heart and that maybe he would be showing you some things that you need to take more serious in your life. Maybe some, some ways of living, some decisions that you've been making that because he loves you, he wants to change that. So I want to challenge you right now. Uh, here's how we're going to do it. The, they're going to play a song. I just want you to, to take a minute and do some reflecting, do some praying. Ask God, like David did, search me, oh God, know my heart. Ask him to show you some things in your life. And then, then rest in the fact that he loves you so much that he died for all of it. That he knew you were going to do all those things before he died and he still died and he still loved you. And he still loves you and he hasn't given up on you yet. The fact that the cross proves that. That's the beauty of Christianity. No, you're not good enough, but Jesus was good enough for you and he gives you this free gift of a relationship with him and forgiveness and grace and mercy. That's what this is about. That's what this is a celebration of. So lean into this. Let, the, let God go to work. Uh, confess some things. Repent of some things. Lean into his love. Pray with me. God, I pray for the person right now who struggles with feeling like you're always frustrated with them. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would overwhelm them with your love. That you just don't get bored of forgiving them. That you're not done with them yet. Oh, I pray that they would feel that, Lord. I pray for the person who, who maybe kind of feels the love already, Lord, but maybe they're struggling with this, what's the big deal kind of an attitude, Lord. I pray that they would see you for who you really are, high and lifted up. That a part of the function of your love is to say that you care about the way they live. Pray that good conviction would settle in. Not guilt, not fear, but conviction and a draw to you, Lord. To live the way you want us to live, Lord. I pray uh, that we would rightly see you and your cross and what you did for us right now in this moment. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for loving us right where we are. And way too much to leave us there. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.